It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Greg Jarrett. I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Steve Ducey, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The president delivered his first official State of the Union address, and as much as inflation and changing COVID guidelines matter, the focus was on Ukraine and Russia. What's happening in Ukraine is extraordinary. I'm Dave Anthony. She blamed then-President Trump for the Capitol riot. And it's already cost Liz Cheney a Republican leadership role in the House, and it could cost the Congresswoman her seat as he backs a Republican challenger in Wyoming. But when she participated in what was a sham impeachment without due process, I was really pretty disgusted. And I'm David Marcus. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. President Biden's first State of the Union speech opened with a focus on the state of Ukraine, currently being attacked by Russia. Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. While he praised the Ukrainian people and their president, acknowledging the presence of one of the First Lady's guests, Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., he said the U.S. will not engage Russia in Ukraine. Our troops are being sent to NATO allies to defend what he said is every inch of NATO territory, receiving a standing ovation from members of both parties when he pledged to go after the corrupt leaders and Russian oligarchs' ill-gotten gains. Masks were noticeably absent in the House chamber. As CDC guidelines have shifted on that front, the president said his COVID policies worked, especially on the economic front, but said we've reached a new moment that COVID need no longer control our lives. He also mentioned inflation, saying new efforts to keep supply chains open and competitive, especially in shipping, along with efforts to increase manufacturing at home, especially semiconductor chip manufacturing, are critical, but pressed Congress to pass elements of his now stalled out Build Back Better legislation, including funding for child care, elder care and prescription drugs. The president also addressed crime briefly. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. We talk with Fox News Radio political analyst Josh Kraushauer and Fox News Radio Washington, D.C. correspondent Jared Halpern about whether the president accomplished what he set out to do with his first State of the Union address. This was a stay the course speech. For those expecting the president to abandon Build Back Better, even though he didn't say those words, that was essentially the gist of his domestic agenda. For anyone to really expect a course correction, they're not going to hear it from what, what the president said. So, you know, I, I think he said what he needed to say, but in terms of the president's strategy, his agenda, his tactics going forward, it's not going to change except on the national security and the foreign policy front in confronting Vladimir Putin and Russia. He did spend much of the beginning of his speech talking about Ukraine and, and Russia and specifically Vladimir Putin. I'm wondering, despite the pledge that there will be no American boots on the ground, we're not engaging in a no-fly zone, which would engage NATO or U.S. troops who's ever in charge of enforcing that no-fly zone. 
if things worsen and if this lasts for months, as our own Fox News correspondent Trey Yingston Keeve has has said it might, do things change? Do we see a different level of American engagement and involvement possibly this year? I don't think you're going to see troops on the ground in Ukraine. That was a pretty firm red line that the president spoke, even as he offered stirring rhetoric to support the Ukrainians, to give military aid to the Ukrainians, made a nod to the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States. But he also said in that same paragraph, we're not putting any military forces on the ground in Ukraine. So I think that's going to be the status quo for a long time. The Look, the politics in Europe are different than the politics in the United States. European politics change overnight with the war raging on their territory. In the United States, Ukraine is an issue, and this was an important speech, and the words Biden said about support for Ukraine were significant. But I don't think the politics are. More people are going to weigh the economy over uh, what's going on in Europe in in the short term. Jared, you've watched many State of the Union speeches. Too many, probably. Never too many. (laughs) Was the most, like, sort of galvanizing moment for, I guess, both parties, was the most bipartisan moment, maybe the most emotional moment as well, seeing Ukraine's ambassador, having the First Lady hug her as the president said, we will stop Putin, no more to Putin. I mean, the whole speech, especially that first part, was striking because this is the first State of the Union that a president has been able to deliver in two decades without U.S. forces engaged in combat operations in Afghanistan. And instead, the attention now is in Europe, this Russian invasion and the United States and European allies rallying around that. And I was struck by the number of lawmakers, Republicans and Democrats, wearing blue and yellow, the colors Mm -hmm. of the Ukrainian flag, members of Congress walking into the House chamber, waving the Ukrainian flag. And that solidarity was striking. It's hard to maybe pinpoint sort of historically, obviously presidents, like I said, have given states of the union In times of international crises, when U.S. forces are committed to wars in the Middle East, but it is generational to see conflict like this in continental Europe. And it certainly overshadowed, I think, a lot of what the president probably had intended to say. This was a speech that was delivered for the first time in two years without members of Congress wearing masks, without members of Congress largely isolated because of the pandemic. Here in the District of Columbia, the mask mandate has been dropped. The vaccine requirements have been dropped. Schools across the country are starting to drop mask mandates if they haven't already. And that wasn't the moment that's going to stand out in this speech. The moment that's going to stand out in this speech, to your point, is the president singling out the Ukrainian ambassador and vowing that the United States will do what it can to help that country, not just immediately, but in the aftermath with what we expect to be a pretty pricey rebuilding operation. Given what we've just went through for the past two years, Jared, of this pandemic, are you surprised it wasn't a bigger focus of the president's speech? No, because what's (laughs) happening in Ukraine is extraordinary. You know, even members of Congress have sort of said, listen, we have different approaches on sort of how these sanctions should have been delivered pre-invasion, post-invasion. But now that this has happened, there is 
almost unanimous sentiment in Congress that funding is going to be provided in the form of arms, in the form of humanitarian assistance. We're not sure how that price tag is going to look, maybe how it's going to be allocated. But the idea of Congress signing up probably in the next couple of weeks to fund Ukraine to the tune of billions of dollars seems pretty lock solid at this point. Josh, we know based on polling, at least at this point, inflation is really top of mind for Americans and for voters. Did the president come with a pitch on inflation that Americans can find some relief in? I mean, it sounded like he was pushing, you know, for things to be made in America, chip manufacturing, pledging to create this maritime commission that's going to focus on um, competition of shipping that might help address supply chain issues. Are those the kinds of things Americans want to hear right now? I mean, his pitch was basically build back better and then cutting down waste, fraud and abuse. I mean, that, that didn't work the first time around. And simply putting lipstick on a pig doesn't change the fundamental reality that Joe Manchin is needed to pass any legislation through Congress. And, you know, look, this was a political address. I think he's trying to sell Build Back Better in a different way, and maybe it'll help him in terms of how the public views him. It's just policy-wise not going to help him pass it through Congress. Josh is right. The, the message may be changing. The math is not changing. Uh-huh. Congress is the same. You still need at least 50 votes in the United States Senate. Joe Manchin has talked about his concerns with inflation, has talked about his concerns as it relates to to spending this kind of money in the current economic situation. Now, that being said, are there elements of Build Back Better that Joe Manchin has, has been supportive of? Absolutely. But it's still going to matter how that is is sort of legislatively handled, right? Now, the president's going to do what presidents historically do after States of the Union, beginning Wednesday morning. He will go on the road and he will sell this agenda. But to Josh's point, it may be more of a midterm message because the Mm. numbers in the United States Senate will not change because the president delivered a speech. Um, Let's talk about some of the things that were missing or absent from the speech. There was no reference to Afghanistan. There were fleeting mentions, right, of of items that... you know, Democratic voters really care about, like voting rights and abortion related issues. There was no mention of President Trump. <laughs> are, are these some of the things? What did you make, Josh, of the of those either fleeting mentions or absent of uh, mentions? That That is a great observation, Jessica, because the, what was the first message in 2022 from this White House voting rights in speech in Georgia? You know, we had the the Virginia governor's race just a few months earlier, all about Trump, which Terry McAuliffe lost because of that incessant focus on the former president. That base first messaging has turned off a whole lot of voters. So even though the president is giving the same pitch writ large, he's not talking about the base first issues that really dominated the first year of his presidency. And I think that's very politically important. But again, it's because of what the dynamic is in the United States Congress, right? It's not as if the president and Democrats haven't tried to get these items over the finish line. They have, but they've fallen short and build back better. They fell short of the 50 votes needed through this budget reconciliation process. The other issues that we're talking about are not budget reconciliation issues. These are filibuster issues in the Senate that require 60 votes. That at any given time is at least 10 Republicans getting on board. And so the idea that these big ideas are going to get that kind of traction uh, are are unlikely. So again, I think it, it pivots back to sort of what do we want to tell voters we, we want to accomplish? Because these have gotten votes, not all of them, but many of these these ideas 
have received some level of, of voting in, in the United States Senate. Though I will say the protecting abortion rights, Roe v. Wade, mm-hmm. coming up in the Supreme Court right. in June. That may be a bigger issue I'm after su- June. Yeah. I will say I'm surprised he didn't devote more attention to that. That was an issue that, looking back at that Virginia governor's race, McAuliffe focused on that quite some quite some time, didn't end up becoming a major issue in the end. So I wonder if they've they've done polling, they've seen focus groups showing abortion isn't quite the issue that, that it was once seen as. Finally, gentlemen, um, Iowa Governor uh, Reynolds gave the Republican rebuttal. She did, uh, she did as one Democratic strategist uh, and Fox News contributor said, um, a, a list of, of grievances, GOP grievances, rather than a proposed list of solutions. I thought that was was interesting. He compared really her to Newt Gingrich and this idea of coming up with a contract for America, coming up with proposed solutions. The things Reynolds mentioned, parents, what's being taught in schools, COVID, these things matter to a lot of Republican and independent voters. Is it fair to say this was just an airing of grievances or... Yeah, these aren't just, I mean, they're grievances, but they're much more than that. I mean, when you combine the culture war with quality of life issues, that is about as politically potent a uh, combination as you can get. And it's uh, benefiting the Republicans. I mean, education is an issue, for example, where Democrats had 15, 20 point advantages for my whole life in, 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 in congressional elections. Republicans in the latest Washington Post poll narrowed it to three points. That's a significant wow. seismic shift. Uh, and, and, and you also have co- COVID policies and everything that the president was talking about. And I give him credit for adapting. Uh, and he didn't have a, many masks at all in, in the hall today. That was a sign that they saw the frustration and the politics of re- these restrictions just being not supported by most voters. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Fox News radio political analyst and against the grain columnist at the National Journal, Josh Krauser, and Fox News radio Washington, D.C. correspondent Jared Halpern. Thank you both for your time. Thanks. Thanks, Jessica. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. This is David Marcus with your Fox News commentary. 
coming up. Congresswoman Liz Cheney was one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach then-President Trump over the Capitol riots. There are some times when you do have to say, you know, partisanship has to be put aside. Cheney calls herself a strong conservative, but... The only way the Republican Party can go forward in strength is if we reject the lie. If we reject what happened on January 6th, if we reject the efforts that President Trump made, uh, frankly, to steal the election. The Congresswoman went further, joining Adam Kinzinger who also voted to impeach as the only Republicans on the Democrat-led House committee investigating the Capitol riot. And last month, both were censured by the Republican National Committee. Kinzinger has decided not to run for re-election in Illinois. Cheney wants to keep her job. But several Republicans are trying to unseat her in Wyoming, led by Harriet Hageman, who's been endorsed by the former president. Liz Cheney doesn't live in Wyoming. She hasn't lived in Wyoming. She bought a house here in 2012, but she lives in Northern Virginia with her family. Hageman started thinking about running in 2020, then. But when she participated in what was a sham impeachment without due process, I was really pretty disgusted. And so uh, not only did I start thinking seriously about it, but I started having people all over the state of Wyoming contacting me and saying, would you consider running against her? I kept thinking at some point she was going to back down and kind of recognize the error of her ways. But keep in mind, I'm a water and natural resource attorney. I'm a trial attorney and have been for over 30 for about 33 years. So the concept of due process is pretty incredibly important to me. And when I watched what was going on with the impeachment, the lack of due process, the lack of information, it was clearly a railroad job. It was clearly done uh, it, to be expedited so that no one could say, hey, wait a minute, what really did happen here? And uh, I didn't like that. Now, as you go around the state and you talk to people, you've been in Wyoming for, for many years. She's not been out there campaigning. She hasn't been around the state as much as you. So you pretty much have the state to yourself at the moment, right? Yes, which is a rather odd circumstance, isn't it? And it really proves my point that I made earlier that she doesn't come from Wyoming. She doesn't live in Wyoming and she doesn't have the Wyoming values. So I've traveled over 14,000 miles by car in Wyoming since September and I go to town halls and I have two and three hour town halls and I have from the beginning. I've made it to every county, most of them um, multiple times. I was just at CPAC this past weekend, which was Absolutely fabulous. But yes, I'm working very, very hard to get out and meet with the folks in Wyoming. From what I can tell from Liz, the couple of times that she does come into the state, she tends to go to the press. She sits down with them. And I think she uses that as a surrogate with talking with actual people in the state. And then she will go and have a private event at someone's private home with, you know, four or five, six people. But that's kind of the extent of her campaigning. Now, she has been, of course, censured by the Republican Party. So what she said was she She's not going to convince the crazies, and she said she rejects the crazies, and she says that that people against her have abandoned the Constitution. I think she's obviously relating back to what happened with the president and the election fraud claims and all that that happened in, in late 2020 and early 2021. What's your response to that? 
couple of things. I don't think that you ought to call your constituents crazies. And simply because someone disagrees with her or with me, I don't believe that that makes them crazy. I may, I think that that means that they disagree with me or they disagree with her. We have a legitimate right to uh, disagree with our government and our government officials in this country. That's one of the things that makes us unique. Uh, and and it, I think that it really demonstrates the arrogance with which she approaches this office, that you're either with her or you're against her. And she doesn't have any interest in convincing you she's right. She's just right. You're wrong. And not only wrong, are you wrong, you're crazy. She was censored because she is not doing what we sent her to Washington, D.C. to do. In fact, she's doing exactly the opposite, which is we have a failure of an administration with the Biden, Pelosi, radical left, radical green agenda right now. And I threw in the latter part because we're looking at a disaster in the Ukraine and in Europe right now because of bad energy policies. Um, that's what I talked about at CPAC this past week. And energy security is national security. And one of the very first things that this administration did when it came into office was destroy our inter- energy independence. Uh, that is a big deal to me. It's a big deal to me because I come from Wyoming, one of uh, of the top energy-producing states in the nation, so our jobs are very dependent on it. It's of great interest to me because I'm an American, and I believe in protecting our shores and and, and protecting the stability in this country. Uh, The president's pushing a more clean energy agenda. He has climate change initiatives. And he believes that, you know, we need to do more to change our approach to climate change for global warming and all that kind of stuff. What would you do in Congress to try to find a middle ground if there is a middle ground on any of that energy issue? Well, the the reality is, is that. Our ability to protect our environment and take care of our environment is, direct, is directly proportional to our prosperity. You destroy our economy, and that's one of the very first things that's going to go by the wayside. You can't come in and destroy your economy and then expect that we're going to be able to spend millions, if not billions, upon those types of things. The other thing is that our energy is clean. We do protect the environment here. Uh, We're incredibly environmentally sound. And in fact, to the extent that they're pumping gas or LNG in in, uh, in, uh, Russia, it's dirtier than what you have in the United States. So producing these energy supplies in the United States actually protects the environment. It doesn't destroy the environment. You can take a tour of any one of our coal mines in Wyoming and see the reclamation that they've done. You can see the areas that are used by the wildlife. You can see the incredible grass and pasture land that they have created. You look at the same with our oil and gas industry. They can talk about being carbon-free by 2030 or 2035, and they can talk about going away with the oil and gas industry or the coal industry, and absolutely none of that is feasible. Now, she said the Biden administration's destroying the economy. Democrats would disagree. There was 7% economic growth last quarter, and for all of last year, GDP growth was almost 6%, the most since 1984. However, inflation is still at a 40-year high as we keep paying more for more things.
You don't just wake up one day and say, oh, my goodness gracious, look at that inflation out there on the yard. It is something that happens because of the policies that they adopted, killing the Excel pipeline, uh, the, the, the border, the, the absolute disaster at our southern border. The inflation is real, and it is tied to the policies of this administration. They are affecting real kitchen table issues with people around this country. All right. You, you, you mentioned earlier that there was a sham impeachment for uh, for President President Trump as he was leaving office. You said that they didn't have the information at the time. Well, now, more than a year later, the investigation does continue. I know she's on the House committee with Democrats probing what happened that day. Why would that be a bad idea to continue to investigate what happened a year ago? You have more than 700 people who face criminal charges. A trial this week is the first one to start. Others have pled guilty. Why would we not want to investigate that day? I'm not necessarily opposed to the investigation, but when it is completely and totally one-sided, whatever comes out of that investigation is not going to tell us what happened that day. It's going to tell us one version of what happened that day. The reason that they kicked Jim Banks and Jim Jordan off of the committee was they didn't want them to ask the uncomfortable questions. If you're going to do an investigation, the uncomfortable questions are the ones that are the most important in my book. So if you're going to have an investigation, there's a legitimate reason as to why both Democrats and Republicans are appointed by their respective leadership. Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney were not appointed by Kevin McCarthy. They were appointed by Nancy Pelosi. There's nobody on the other side. And, and you've got to have the other side. You have to have the other story being told. You have to have the other evidence coming in. That's what they're excluding. Okay. So, All right. What about what about the former president? Do do you have concerns about what he did that day? He went and he addressed a rally right before the people went into the Capitol. We can't accept the the election it was stolen from us. I mean, do you have any concerns about how he handled that day? You know, I was not there. I was I, I wasn't there for that. I didn't see it. And, and to be honest with you, I haven't even seen much by way of video. I'd like to see the 14,000 hours of videotape that the Capitol Police and the and, and the municipal police have. I'd love to see all of that. I'd love to see what happened there. Do I think that Donald Trump uses interesting rhetoric? Sure. But we all know the way that Donald Trump speaks. And one of the things that Donald Trump made very clear that day is go up there and peaceably assemble. Uh, anybody who I have said over and over again, anyone who trespassed or destroyed property that day should be prosecuted pursuant to the laws. And as you mentioned at the very beginning of this discussion, they are. They are being prosecuted. That apparently is not good enough for this January 6th committee because they have a different agenda. Harriet Hageman got to see former President Trump at CPAC. He told the conservative gathering, Vladimir Putin would never have invaded Ukraine on his watch. He understood me, and he understood that I didn't play games. This would not have happened. Democrats criticized him for calling the Russian leader smart. Of course he's smart, but the real problem is that our leaders are dumb. The former president easily won a poll at CPAC for who they want as the Republican nominee in 2024. Now, back in 2016... Harriet Hageman was not a Trump supporter. She backed Ted Cruz then, one of his convention delegates. I mean, I'm from Wyoming. Ted Cruz is from Texas, another oil-producing state, western state. I thought that he would truly understand our issues. And I had some skepticism as to whether a, a guy from New York City would. What did he do? He did what he said he was going to do. That's the thing. People keep bringing this back. Well, you didn't, you, you didn't support him in 2016. 
He walked into office and he did what he said he was going to do. He made us energy independent. He did close the border. His support, what does it mean to you? Well, his support as well as others, um, it, it means a ton. First of all, I met with him. He had an opportunity to discuss with me these various policy issues that are important to both of us. So one of the things that it did is it helped narrow this field down so that this is going to be a head-to-head battle between Liz Cheney and I. And while the Democrats in Wyoming have made clear that they are going to vote for Liz Cheney, there are not enough of them to put her back in office if this is a head-to-head between us. So that's important. Also, the ability to raise money, um, having his endorsement, having his vote of confidence. Some of the other endorsements are important as well, in part for the same reason, but also in part because there's such huge no confidence votes against Liz Cheney. You know, as a congresswoman, you recognize you're one of 435 people. And if you can't work with your colleagues, you can't accomplish anything. And that's where she is. She can't work with her colleagues. She has a very small subset of friends, uh, about nine of them. Uh, the other folks who voted for impeachment and Nancy Pelosi and those folks situationally. But she's really burned every bridge she has back in Washington, D.C. So she cannot work on the issues that are important to us. Harriet Hageman, Republican candidate for Congress in the state of Wyoming. We thank you very much for your time today. Dave, thank you for having me. Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. David Marcus. What's on your mind? In 2020, Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent for Christians, fell on February 26th. It was one of the last days of normalcy before our descent into pandemic lockdown. For most of those 40 days, nobody had to decide what to give up for Lent because almost everyone gave up everything. That Easter Sunday, like no other, was the first holiday in isolation. This week, Lent begins again, and it feels like more than a coincidence that it coincides with what seems to be the final gasps of COVID restriction. Christians in our blue cities where prohibitions lingered are entering this period of sacrifice and self-reflection as their lives return to something like normal. So what should we give up for this Lent? My humble suggestion is that we seek to forego anger and ego over the coming weeks. For those of us who have long opposed the absurd and overreaching measures of the past two years, the urge to gloat is overwhelming. We were called murderers, grandma killers, science deniers, and worse. Now, the overwhelming evidence shows we were right all along. But how should we handle that? Here, a distinction should be made. Those in power, the politicians, public health officials, TV news anchors, should be held to account and forced to admit how devastatingly wrong they were After all, this must never happen again. But when it comes to our personal relations, our friends, family, co-workers, a more gentle approach is not only moral, it's practical. Over the coming weeks on social media and in our conversations, we will observe a stunning set of firsts since the pandemic started. First time my kids have been in a restaurant. First time I'm maskless at church. First time in person with my favorite sibling, this kind of thing. Before our jaws drop and out comes the snark, 
we should think for a moment and suspend our natural urge to judge. First of all, this is an act of kindness in keeping with Lent. Many who trusted the Fauci and his minions know on some level that they were duped, that indeed they made many sacrifices in vain. But unlike Democrat governors and big tech oligarchs, they did not do so in order to gain power or profit, but from sincere concern for themselves and their fellow man. That is admirable. Secondly, there is an element of enlightened self-interest here. Providing a face-saving landing strip for the COVID-obsessed may well make them more likely to resist such measures in the future. Understanding will go a lot farther than backing them into a corner. Lent is a time for Christians to understand just how unworthy we are of God's love and yet how generous he is in bestowing it. What he asks in return is that we seek to emulate him, though our efforts are often flawed, grasping, and childish. In the coming weeks, we have a chance to comfort or condemn, help or humiliate. During the origin of Lent, Christ was tempted in the desert with mastery of the universe. Today, all we are tempted with is a sarcastic comment or Facebook post. Surely that can be given up to the Lord and we can find peace in doing so. Better that our loved ones remove the splinter of COVID hysteria from their own eyes. This year, when Easter comes and your family members who have locked themselves inside for two years are finally back, don't scoff, just be glad. After all, it is good to be right but it is right to be good. Uh, this is David Marcus, author of Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.